Hello and welcome to another episode of Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro. Let's jump right in because I want to give you updates on some things we've already reported on and bring you some new stuff. First of all, the Jonathan Taylor saga continues and it is nowhere near a resolution. But after being away from the team first for rehab on his surgically repaired ankle, then returning to camp and then leaving again for an excused absence to tend to a personal matter, Jonathan Taylor returned to the team today. It is Sunday when this is being recorded. He, he, he returned to the Colts today and plans to travel with them to Philly for the, for the preseason finale against the Eagles, although he is not going to play because he has not, he has not yet been medically cleared to practice. But the fact that he's traveling tells me that that some of the ice is starting to cool. Uh, Jim Ursay released a statement saying they were thrilled to have him back. Shane Steichen, same thing. So maybe, just maybe, this unresolvable situation will work itself out. We don't know. Uh, the Colts have met with a few running backs in recent weeks. Uh, they met with Kareem Hunt. I believe they met. They, they signed Kenyon Drake. So they do have a running back situation should Jonathan Taylor never play another down for the Indianapolis Colts. But the report that, A, he's back, we knew he was coming back because he'd been there and his absence was excused. But the, but the fact that he's back and plans to travel and that, that Ursay and Steichen are saying we're, we're thrilled to have him, at least for Ursay, I mean, for Steichen, that's what you say. That's that's He's been consistent about wanting Jonathan Taylor on the field and on the team. But for Ursay, after all the comments that he's made that he shouldn't have made, for him to say we're thrilled to have Jonathan Taylor back back in the building, I think is a is a huge step in the right direction because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stubbornness in that organization right now, and uh, I think I think for for it's not it's not again it's not news that he's returning. We knew he was going to return. It's news that he's traveling with them. And it's news that Ursay is thrilled to have him there because those were the points of contention. Normally, I don't believe injured players travel that often. Uh, so the fact that he, and especially if you're a disgruntled injured player, you have no real incentive to travel, especially in the preseason. But here's Jonathan Taylor traveling with his team to uh, to Philly for the preseason finale. So that is good news. One interesting thing the Colts did do this week was, and we all saw this coming. Uh, but it's what followed that that was a bit of a head scratcher for me. They did officially name after one preseason game. They officially named Anthony Richardson the starter for Week One, which I believe that's the right call. I believe that for him to be the quarterback of the future and what this organization desperately needs after the last five plus years since Andrew Luck unexpectedly retired, what this team has needed is quarterback stability. They've had a different starting quarterback every year since then, whether it be Philip Rivers, Jacoby Brissett, Sam Ellinger, Matt Ryan. Carson Wentz, whoever you you want to throw out there, they've had a different starting quarterback to start the season every year since Andrew Luck walked away from football, and so and so they dra- they they used their fourth overall pick to draft Anthony Richardson, and we knew they were going to draft one of the top quarterbacks, whoever they whoever ended up falling to them. We thought it was we knew they weren't going to get their hands on Bryce Young because he was likely going to go first overall, but before the trade. For the Panthers, the Bears had a pick, and they, you know, and they weren't going to need a quarterback. They had Justin Fields, so that potentially left, and and Arizona was going to go defense. They didn't need one either, so that potentially left 
C.J. Stroud or Anthony Richardson on the table. But the trade happened. C.J. Stroud was gone. Anthony Richardson was there. They took him. They like him. And he's showing great improvement in the preseason. But I th- what the case was, was if he's going to start or, or if he's going to learn, he needs to learn on the field. He needs to get reps. He needs to get time. He needs to get practice. He needs to get he needs to see the field in front of him. He needs to see defenses. And so it's the right call for him to start. But what is what was weird to me was naming him the starter and then immediately holding him out of the second preseason game against Chicago, which they did win, but Anthony Richardson did not play. And from a starting quarterback standpoint, I get this. You generally are trying to protect your You're trying to get them ready while simultaneously protecting them from injury before the season actually starts. But in Richardson's case, like I just said, the argument for starting him is let him get that time. Let him get those reps. Let him get the work against the defense. And so to not play him immediately after telling the world that he's going to be your starting quarterback, when it's widely known that he needs those reps, is a bit of a head scratcher, especially since he had a, had a good game against the Bills. He made it, made a couple of mistakes, but he had a really good game. So then to go against the Bears, that's a game where you can really see his adjustments and his growth because the Bears aren't the best defense. So put him in and to see what he can do against that defense. If he's getting his accuracy under control, if he's making his reads, if he's if he's making good decisions with the ball, you need to play him. You need to see what do we have here? Can he make adjustments? How is he going to grow? How fast is he going to grow? So I don't necessarily agree with them not playing him at all. If, if if he was a year four starter and he'd proven something in this league, sure. But after so much noise has been made about the work he still needs and how raw he still is and how he needs to make reads and he needs to make better decisions with the ball and he needs to make less throw less interceptions and be more accurate, to not play him at all. I mean, at least give him a couple of series. He's a rookie. And he only played, I think, two series in the first game. Give him reps. Let him see defenses, whether they're starters or not. Let him see defenses. And what's going to make things interesting for the Colts, should things not go well in the regular season, is that Gardner Minshew is proving that he's ready to step in should something go wrong. I believe in the first preseason game, he was something like 9 of 11. Second preseason game, he was 13 of 15, 107 yards and a touchdown. No interceptions, no turnovers. Played very efficiently, very smart. Had an 86% completion rate. And his completion rate, although I don't know off the top of my head, was very high in the first game as well. So while completion percentage is not the biggest thing in the world, because I believe Alex Smith has the highest complete, highest career completion percentage in NFL history, and yet he was replaced twice as a team's starting quarterback, um, so that's not, that's not the whole world, but we saw in Jacksonville, the, the, the Minshew mania for that franchise. So Gardner Minshew is capable of giving, of electrifying a fan base and making exciting things happen. And with his completion percentage and, and performances that he's put on as QB two in the, in the first two preseason games, even though Anthony Richardson has been assured the starting job week one. You know, if if it doesn't go well in in the first three weeks, I believe they have Jacksonville and Baltimore. If it doesn't go well, and he gets pulled 
you know, who knows if if Gardner Minshew is going to relinquish that job if he plays like he's played in the preseason. Again, it's the preseason you can't put too, too much stock in it, but like to see Gardner Minshew kind of not making mistakes and literally finding his target on on almost every play to not play Anthony Richardson. I, I think it's a huge mistake for that franchise that's leaning on this young guy that hasn't had that many starts under his belt, period. Uh, he missed much of his senior season in high school. I believe he only had, what, 13 starts at Florida? And so here we are, you're holding him out of his second preseason game when he showed re- real potential in the first, and then you name him the starter and hold him out. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The next thing I want to talk about is the ongoing James Harden situation in Philadelphia. James Harden is was, was probably the second biggest trade story of the offseason with Damian Lillard. That has seemed too cool. I believe he still wants a trade, but there's nothing immediately happening, so I fully expect, I 100% expect Damian Lillard to be in Portland at the start of the year, and maybe things go well with him and Scoot Henderson, and he changes his mind. Who knows? But right now, all eyes in the NBA are on James Harden, as things have gotten really tense between him and him and the Sixers, or at least him and and uh, Daryl Morey, where after Philadelphia announced that they were no longer looking at trade partners for James Harden when they couldn't make a deal with the Clippers, which is the team that James Harden said he wanted to play for, end of story, James Harden called Daryl Morey a liar, and very publicly, I think he was at a camp in China and said he's a liar and I won't play for him ever again. Couple things. James Harden saw everything go on with Damian Lillard and how everyone was saying Damian Lillard has no leverage as far as getting out, which is true. I I I do believe I do believe the I do believe Portland owes him something. But mathematically, he has no leverage. He signed a contract. He's locked in for a couple of years. So they're in no hurry to trade him and James Harden sees this, says he wants to not return to Philadelphia, then opts into his contract, giving Philadelphia full control, and is now mad when they decide that the best thing for them is to keep a player that's on their roster. Daryl Morey's not a liar. He tried. No, There was no deal to be made. And he's looking forward for his franchise. And... James Harden saying these things doesn't exactly bode well for James Harden because if you if you stack up the two situations side by side, Damian Lillard has been loyal to one franchise. He has been focused on winning. He has been a huge part of the community. He has been a model citizen for 11 years in Portland, as opposed to James Harden, who, when things were going south in Houston, some might say, ate his way out of Houston, came in ridiculously overweight, didn't play well, all these things, and forced his way out of Houston, goes to, forces his way to Brooklyn, where he teams up with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, that's pretty much a disaster, forces his way out of there, forces his way to Philadelphia, where he teams up with now MVP Joel Embiid, and oh, by the way, once again, with former Houston Rockets GM, Daryl Morey. So for him to now be against Daryl Morey is kind of a flip-flop because A, he was traded to Houston, gave them nine years, loved it there, 
Then he treated them badly. Then Daryl Morey left, and he and James Harden wanted out. It doesn't go well in Brooklyn. He forces he, and then he wants to go back to Daryl Morey, forces his way on to Philadelphia. And now that things aren't going his way, he wants out again. And oh, by the way, let's not forget that before he opted in to his contract with the Sixers, there wasn't a huge market for James Harden as a free agent, and he knew that, and that's one of the reasons he opted in. He wanted to go back to Houston for his track record of wanting to leave there. Who knows why? I mean, I get it looking at that team and they're up and coming. And they, at the time, they didn't have Dylan Brooks and F Fred Van Fleet, but they have they had a bunch of young players. And I think they're going to be a very interesting team next year. James Harden wanted to return to Houston. Houston wasn't interested. And then he gets to Philadelphia. He wants to go to the Clippers. The Clippers were interested, but they weren't interested enough to actually make it happen. So, and I want to go back to the fact that James Harden has now teamed up with Daryl Morey twice. And yet here he's saying, he's a liar. I don't want to play for him again, blah, 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 blah. I don't think James Harden realizes who he is at this point in his career. I It, it does not make sense to me. James Harden is not a superstar anymore. He's not the MVP. He's not that player anymore. And for him to be this, like, I personally don't understand how he can see everything happen with Damian Lillard and then being, and then saying, and then just completely, like, disregard it and think, oh, things are different because it's me. No, it's not. Because at this point in your career and in his career, Damian Lillard's the better player. Damian Lillard is the... Let's be honest, he's the more likable player. He's the more loyal player. He's probably the more well-rounded player, although neither of them play much defense. But for the most part, and yes, above all things, shooting doesn't really age as much as other things in the NBA. And James Harden is a shooter. He's a scorer. But James Harden is now 33 years old. He's a one-dimensional player almost more one-dimensional than anyone else in the league because the media laughs and makes jokes about his his lack of defense and his lack of effort on defense. He's a he's a true one-dimensional player. He's 33 years old, which is old in sports terms. We they we can't all be Tom Brady and LeBron James who take superior care of their bodies to play beyond 36, 37, 38, 40. James Harden's not a hot commodity anymore. And the fact that he doesn't want to play for a contending team, he doesn't want to play with an MVP, which is not the first time. He wanted Chris Paul, then he didn't. He wanted Russell Westbrook, then he didn't. He wanted Kevin Durant back, then he didn't. He wanted Kyrie Irving, then he didn't. He wanted Joel Embiid, now he doesn't. James Harden doesn't know what he wants, and he doesn't have a good idea of who he is in the NBA today. And he thinks just because I just because I want it, I should get it because I'm James Harden. That would have worked five years ago when you were winning MVPs and lighting it up in Houston. But then the NBA world has seen too much to buy into this latest stunt from James Harden. We've seen we've seen the pictures of him out of shape in Houston. We've seen him be disgruntled in Brooklyn. The the world's seen too much from James Harden to buy into yet another headline of him being unhappy. It's who he is. It's who he is, and the NBA world is is finally taking notice.
he's disgruntled. So I do not know how, the, I honestly don't know how the James Harden situation shakes out. I, I hesitate to predict, but if I had to, I would say he ends up playing for Philadelphia this year because he, because I, I hope he still likes basketball too much. And I, and he, he likes paychecks too much to sit out. And honestly, Philadelphia is in a better spot than 25 other teams in the NBA. They're still a contender. They can still make noise in the playoffs. Nick Nurse is a great coach, coach of the year in 2019, NBA champion. Great coach. Embiid's still there. Maxie's still there. I, I don't get it. I don't get Sometimes I don't understand James Harden. He gets all these MVPs, teammates. He basically forced his way from shooting guard and point to point guard so that he could handle the ball all the time. He got his way there. James Harden, to this point in his career, despite being known for being disgruntled and, and forcing and manipulating situations, has gotten his way most of the time, if not every time. One of the biggest questions that we had, one of the biggest unanswered questions that we had is what would have happened in Oklahoma City with Russ and KD and James Harden, if James Harden had never gotten traded to Houston. With the carousel that has been James Harden's career since, we've kind of gotten that answer. Not really. Everybody's older. The situations are different. But he has since played with Russell and KD again. And it hasn't gone well. So, I don't think it's an unanswered question anymore. I think it's just, an, I think it's just more stops in the in the confusing and complicated journey of James Harden in the NBA. And I think we've seen the point where the NBA and the media have had enough. I don't think we've seen the end of James Harden's career. I think he will continue to play for someone. He's still a good player. He still averaged 20 last year, but he's not MVP James Harden anymore. He's second, third option James Harden. It's just the way it is. The next thing I want to talk about, and it's a bit, it's, 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 it's a bit tough for me because the stories are still coming out and i'm and i'm trying to understand more of what this story even is but back in 2009 the story of michael orr took the world by storm the story of this of this down on his luck 17 18 year old kid who was taken in by a wealthy family in tennessee sent to a sent to a private school played football before being drafted into the nfl by the Baltimore Ravens in 2009, the year the movie came out, winning a Super Bowl with the Ravens in 2012 before spending time with the Carolina Panthers and Tennessee Titans before ultimately retiring from football around 2017. The story goes now that we we already knew that Michael Orr was displeased with his portrayal in the Blindside movie, and yes, Movies take creative license with books, with stories. It's, it's to an extent, it's what you have to do when you adapt any kind of story. It's like, how can we tell this story but make it something people want to see? So, yes, things were embellished, like the fact that Michael Orr did not know how to play football at all. Michael Orr claimed that he knew how to play football, he just wasn't as good. But now, 15 years after the movie's release, Michael Orr claims to have learned, and this is why it's come out just in the past couple days is because he just apparently learned this, that he, he, he claims that the Tui family never officially adopted him into their family, instead only becoming conservators of his interest as far as money and 
and different kind of things in his career. And he also claims that everyone else in the family, including the two biological children, received significant money from the from the blindside movie profits uh, that he did not and was told that they were put into an account that he couldn't yet access at the time, but has only just learned that there was no he he didn't receive a penny. I don't know how much of this is true because and I'm not trying to invalidate anybody here, but it it does raise the question, why did he wait so long? He he was already displeased with the movie, and yet he went on the he went on the publicity tours. That's that's fine. He was probably under contract to do it. But but then after that, after it died down from him not being happy with the movie, it was quiet for a bit. And now it's like, oh, they never adopted me. They took advantage of me. All the sorts of all this sort of stuff. So so it raises questions, and and this is why I hesitated to even talk about this topic is because I don't know. I don't have all the answers. We don't know who's telling the truth. If I had to guess, I would say neither one is telling the whole truth because that's usually how these things go. The Tuies didn't need to rob Michael Orr of attention or money. They were already wealthy. Sean Tui already owned several fast food chains. Michael Orr still made a good living. He he made it to the NFL. And, and however much of it is true, the story of him being brought into the Tui family, he was afforded opportunities that advanced his career into the NFL. So from that standpoint, they did right by him. We don't know about a conservatorship. We don't know about adoption. But as far as giving him a home and giving him access to education that he may not have had previously, they did that. Now, I've looked into the social medias of Collins Tui, the the... Tui's oldest biological child. The family's nowhere to be found on, on, on her Instagram. The son, SJ, is working, I believe he's worked in the athletic departments of several football programs recently with UCF. I believe he's with Arkansas now. And I did, I, there's a show on Bravo called Below Deck, which follows the goings-on of employees of, of charter. Um, yachts and the Tuies were a, a charter guest one season and it was just sean and leanne the parents and and this was at a time when the kids were would have been adults but it was just it was just sean and leanne the kids the the children michael Orr, his wife his girlfriend now wife were nowhere to be found collins and sj were nowhere to be found so we don't really know what the family's relationship is at this point as a whole. So if Sean and Leanne did this to Michael and they never actually adopted him and they kept money from him and they did, like, that's not good. And it, 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 it taints a great movie for a lot of people. It, I had a, I had a personal connection to that movie that made it very, very special for me. And so I hate to hear this. If, if, if this is in fact true, the fact, the other thing that raises eyebrows is that Michael Orr has, recently demanded 15 million dollars from the Tuies. I don't know if he thinks that's what he's owed from the blind side. I don't know if it's blackmail, but it doesn't make it doesn't make his hands look clean. So I'd say just the whole situation is bad, I think. I think both sides are in the wrong most likely based on everything that we've heard. But an important distinction that I think needs to be made, and I th- and I heard this recently, is that 
the movie deal was made with the author of the book, not with the Tuies themselves. So they, because that's how it happened. The Tuies made the deal for the book, and then I'm sure they, I'm sure they were probably they were likely involved with the deal for the movie because it's likenesses and it's and it's their story. But it's it was probably wasn't theirs to negotiate as far as from the author's perspective. They 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 granted the author access to the story to publish and then the and then the author sold it to a, a, a film distributor so a lot can be lost up in there and then maybe, maybe maybe that's why michael Orr didn't say anything for 15 years because because a lot of things can get lost when you're dealing with book rights uh, story rights to book rights to movie rights life rights all that stuff. a lot of stuff can get lost and jumbled up and and that's why maybe it wasn't until recently that, that a lawyer said hey here's here's the deal now so so i don't know so there's a lot here still the story is not over it's not resolved so i can only say what i know right now and it is honestly a question mark i can say i don't think anyone's hands are clean i think this is a situation of he said they said and some feelings got hurt along the way and now that tie is officially over and done and and i sincerely hope that they can all get into a room again and be the family i we again we don't know the real family we don't know how much of a family they were before but everybody's all those children have families now and they have they have there's grandkids involved and i would have I, I would hate to know that the subjects of this great heartwarming film just completely imploded but I think it there there's a lot of he said they said there's a lot of hurt feelings there's a lot of question marks there's a lot of pain here that needs healing and I and I just it it's it stinks to hear this because it was such a good story and I believe there was truth to it but whatever's happened since then we just don't know so I will continue to keep an eye on this story as as I'm. I, I'm invested in it because, I, as I've said, I have a personal connection to that movie that has only gr grown more personal as the years have gone on. I'll share that story another time. The last thing I want to talk about is we are in the middle of August now, which means that the MLB season is reaching a fever pitch. We have about we have a little over a month, about a month and a half before the playoffs. And things are taking shape. The Yankees this week dropped below 500 for the first time since 1990. And it, it, it came on the heels of back-to-back -back shutouts from the Atlanta Braves, who are the clear best team in Major League Baseball. So we will put, our, we will put out our latest power rankings tonight. That's Sunday night, so you can see kind of where the league stands if you're not if you're not a uh, passionate follower like I am, but you're but you're still interested, the story to me, I've talked several times on the the podcast the last couple of weeks about the Angels and how they made a terrible mistake not trading Otani because now the Angels have completely bottomed out. They could not hit their way out of a paper bag if the paper bag was wet. Like it's they're just bad, and and I said in all that I said that their best bet was the wild card because the AL West was unwinnable because the Rangers were playing so well 
and the and the Astros were playing so well that even that they would even it would even be hard to gain to take over second place in the West because of how well the Astros were playing. Now, what's happened? The Angels are still bad. This isn't about them. Now, what's happened is that the Seattle Mariners, last season's feel-good story, because they made the playoffs for the first time since 2001, have gotten hot at the right time. This is the time that you want to get hot so that you can find sustained success for a month plus to get to play. Look at the Braves of 2021. They got... Jock Peterson, Jorge Soler, and Eddie Rosario in trades at the deadline. And from the second that those three guys put on Braves uniforms, they were hot. And they did not slow down until that team was lifting the trophy in October. So this is the time that hot streaks can make or break the season. It's not necessarily before or after the, the, the trade deadline. If you can get hot late August, which which we're getting there now, it's August 20th as we record this, it can change everything. And the Mariners didn't even make any big deals at the at the deadline, and yet here they are. Julio Rodriguez, in the last four games, not including today, but in the but, but in the four games prior, was 17 for 22 with two homers, eight RBIs, five stolen bases. That's as hot as they come. And and for anybody that doesn't know, there are many people, not just in baseball circles, but there are many athletes that would tell you that hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in sports. And and Julio Rodriguez has gone 17 for 22 with two homers, eight RBIs, five stolen bases in the last four games. Today, he did only go one for five, so he cooled down a bit, but that one was a first at bat double, making him 18 to 23. He scored a run. But he, he he did strike out twice, but he still contributed for his team. He still doubled, still scored a run. Bigger story is the fact that the the Mariners have won six in a row and seven of their last ten. And I previously said the AL West was unwinnable. It is now extremely winnable because the Mariners have moved into third place behind Texas and Houston, who are still very good. But... Texas and Houston have have both gone four and six in their last ten. Texas has lost four in a row. Houston has lost three in a row, including getting swept by Seattle this weekend. Moving Seattle to just three games behind Texas for the AL West lead. That division is no longer safe, and the hottest team in baseball right now is the Seattle Mariners. Now, I still think the best team in the American League is... The Baltimore Orioles and the best team in the National League is the Atlanta Braves. Although the hottest team in the National League is the Dodgers, who just came off of an 11-game win streak to solidify themselves as probably the second best team in the National League. So this, as the Dodgers and Mariners are proving, and the Braves themselves had a six-game win streak end just today in a in a in the finale against the Giants, the Mariners and Dodgers have proven that this is the time to get hot because the Mariners had played pretty even all year. They'd been, they'd, they'd been all around 500 all season, but now they are 69 and 55 winners of six in a row and only three games back in a division previously thought to be unwinnable because of how well Texas was playing. So this is the time that everything can change. The, the NL wildcard race is heating up 
with the Marlins and Reds hanging on. Currently, right now, the Phillies, the Giants, and the Cubs are holding on to those wild card spots. But the, but the Diamondbacks, Reds, and Marlins are all tied with one game back. So there are six teams all within two and a half games of each other for three wild card spots in the National League. The American League looks a little bit different with Tampa. Houston, actually, actually, the American League is a little closer with the top four teams. Right now, those the three spots are held by Tampa, Houston, and Seattle, with Toronto being a half a game back. Boston is still in the picture at three games back, but after that, it's a steep drop-off because the next team down is the Angels, who are eight and a half back. So, so really, the, 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 the wild card race in the American League is a five-team race. And but the National League is anybody's game. I think I think everybody could say the biggest surprises this year have been have been Baltimore because we knew they'd be better. We didn't know that they'd be this good because they didn't make any significant additions to the team that barely missed the playoffs a year ago. But their kind of surge has been a big surprise. We expected Texas to be good, but we didn't expect them to be this good without Jacob deGrom. So that's a big one as well. But the biggest surprises have been the play of the Reds, Marlins, and Diamondbacks pretty consistently all year with with the Diamondbacks leading the AL leading the NL West for much of the first half. The Dodgers have since taken over and aren't looking to relinquish that at this point, but the Diamondbacks are still in the conversation as I just said very much for the wild card. So here we are on, on August 20th. We have about a month and a half left of regular season baseball. And every everything's still up for grabs. I think the only the only things that you can say, the only divisions right now that you can say are safe is the NL East with the Braves having a 13-game lead over the second-place Phillies. The NL West where the Dodgers now have an 11-and-a-half game lead over the Giants. And the Central is is pretty well in hand given that that division has has been pretty wobbly all season, but it looks like it looks like Minnesota now has full control, being five games above 500 and six games up on Cleveland. Who I said at the break that I believed Cleveland would would take full control of that division in the second half. So there is egg on my face. But with the exceptions of those three divisions, the other three divisions and the wild card is anybody's game. It's they're all close as well as Baltimore's playing Tampa's still right there because they have played. They started the season 21 and nine. And even though they have played pretty much 500 baseball since then, that start has kept them kind of in, in the story. The Rays are 54 and 42 since starting the season 21 and nine, which is still pretty good. But given the torrid pace they started on, is is it's it's not the same team, especially with all the with all the issues going on with Wander Franco, where he's likely, I don't want to say likely, but it's a possibility that we that that Wander Franco never plays another game in Major League Baseball, as his case has now been turned over to basically the Dominican FBI. So it's not looking good for Wander Franco, as many of the claims against his suit. With, with his alleged girlfriend, who is, let's just say, underage, have been proven true. And he could be looking at serious penalties. So 
we may not see Wander Franco again, which for the game of baseball is a bad thing because he's a great young player, but that doesn't mean you're immune to other things. You've still got to follow the law. And so the Rays have been decent since their 21-9 start, but not nearly the team that they were, allowing Baltimore to, to pretty much grab control of that division, and they haven't looked back. It's still only a two-and-a-half game lead in that division, so Baltimore can't let up. But Baltimore has been in control pretty much since that first month. That is all I have for you today on Empire Sports Talk. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to our channel. For, for all the new content that's coming out this week and weeks follow, we haven't put up the new stuff yet. It is coming. You're going to like it. So please like the video, like our other videos. Hit that subscribe button to see what's coming next. We, we, we'll have our first guest in the new space coming up here soon. I'm, I'm Roman Gennaro. I'm your host. This has been Empire Sports Talk, my mom's favorite podcast. Today's a good day to go 1-0. I'll see you next time.